Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on today's show is Josh Friedman the co-founder and co-CEO of Canyon Partners, a $25 billion multi-strategy firm that specializes in credit-related analysis across distressed securities, securitizations, risk arbitrage, and real estate. Josh founded Canyon in 1990 with Mitch Julis, his roommate from their time at Harvard Law School and Harvard Business School. Our conversation covers Josh's background at Goldman Sachs and Drexel Burnham under Michael Milken, the founding of Canyon, its investment philosophy, key stages on its path, and structure of the organization. We then turn to Josh's thoughts on the evolution of credit markets, liquidity, competitive dynamics among creditors, opportunities, and risks. 
We close with Josh's advice for investment committees based on experience as a trustee at Harvard Management, Los Angeles County Museum of Art, and Caltech, among many others. Please enjoy my conversation with Josh Friedman. Josh, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you very much for having me. Well, let's go all the way back and start with your original path into investing. It was sort of an accident, and it wasn't at all what I planned to do. I was sort of a science nerd. I was a lot better at adding and subtracting than I was at writing essays. So I majored in physics, and I thought I would become an executive at some kind of a startup or one of the tech firms outside of Boston on Route 128. I was from that area, and there were all sorts of interesting tech startups in that era. This was the 1970s, 1980s boom of electronics. That's what I studied. Then I got a scholarship and I went to England for a couple of years and studied politics and economics, went to law school and business school, which was something my father insisted that I did because he had a cousin who did that and he was the only successful one in the family. So my dad said, you have to do that too. I had no intention of being a lawyer, but along the way, my plan to be in the tech world got waylaid because I got recruited by Goldman Sachs. I spent a couple of years in the early 1980s in the merger and acquisition department at Goldman Sachs in New York. From there, I was recruited to Drexel. My business school roommate and law school roommate, Mitch Julis, had also been recruited to Drexel. This was an interesting and entrepreneurial thing. It fit my dad's instructions to go out and be entrepreneurial and don't follow conventional routes and so forth. It didn't fit my original dream of being a tech entrepreneur and being on the left side of the balance sheet. So I went out and I worked in the magical world of Mike Milken in 1984 to 1990, which was just an unbelievable place. It was a great place to learn how to buy a business if you didn't have any money because we were financing people buying businesses who didn't have that much money. I always wanted to be on the buy side. I didn't want to be an agent. I really wanted to be a principal of some sort. That was the initial trajectory. Both Goldman and Drexel before its fall were legendary talent consortiums. Would love to get a sense of what that was like. Both firms were unbelievable magnets for talent, and they were also incredible at producing a diaspora of alumni who went out and did entrepreneurial things. At Goldman, when I was there, they didn't have the history of people leaving. I was one of the first people who was on a great path who actually left. So that was a little bit of a jarring change at the time from convention at Goldman Sachs. Later on, of course, they went to spawn all sorts of interesting buy-side businesses in private equity and debt, every manner of financial service and principal activity in the capital markets. But Goldman was a green beret full of talented, smart, creative people. I was in one of the most interesting places in the M&A department because that was a business that was just exploding, thanks to people like Steve Friedman, who ran that group and later on went to run Goldman, thanks to Bob Greenhill at Morgan Stanley, thanks to people like Bruce Wasserstein at First Boston, and thanks to people like Felix Rowton and others at Lazard. That business was just growing at an extraordinary clip, and I was part of this group where I was a young guy watching people really write the book on how to do hostile raids and raid defense and all this interesting stuff. I was very fortunate that I was in such an intellectually engaging, fun, creative place. And Goldman just had a lot of smart people who were really nice. So it was terrific. And the leaders of the firm at that time, John Whitehead and John Weinberg, were unique. They were long-term thinkers. They were extraordinarily client-friendly and put their clients' interests, I think, above their own. They were really extraordinary people. And I had the pleasure of working closely with both of them from time to time, even as a young associate. I'm curious if you put this together. You had this extraordinary leadership, all this incredible talent, 
the incredible imprimatur at Goldman, the path to partnership pre-IPO, which was the hottest thing to do. And as you mentioned, no one, for the most part, had left when you did. With Goldman's culture, what was it that got you to be one of those early levers? It was really my dad's voice whispering in the back of my mind. My dad had always said, you have to have your own business. You have to be an entrepreneur. And I wasn't brought up in New York. I was brought up in Boston. My dad certainly didn't know what Wall Street was or know anything about that whole career path. And because I was enough of an outsider, I probably didn't ascribe sufficient value to this extraordinary position I had at this extraordinary firm. Maybe that was a good thing in the end, but I didn't. I really wanted to be an entrepreneur. And when I got the call from Mike, here was this entrepreneur who the senior people at Goldman Sachs, by and large, hadn't heard of him at the time. This was a brand new thing. I knew all about Mike because I was keeping track of all the financial bootstrap people, the guys doing what they called leverage buyouts back then, the early buyout firms of which they were very few, the people who were acting more as principal, as merchant bankers, as opposed to investment bankers. One of my friends and I were keeping track of all of these firms because they seemed like they'd be much more interesting to work at than to simply be an agent in the middle of transactions. And here one of them came knocking at my door. Mike was carving completely new paths in the financial world. There was no such thing as a new issue high-yield bond before Mike and Drexel. The only high-yield bonds were fallen angels, investment-grade bonds that had been downgraded. So to create a new issue high-yield bond that could be quickly brought to market and closed was like weaponizing the private equity industry. So all of a sudden, you went from having a couple of boutique private equity firms that prior to that moment had to go to teachers and Equitable and Northwest Mutual to try to negotiate covenants and spend months and months doing it, and then negotiate with a bank, and then try to get the documents to all fit together. All of a sudden, you could run around, see a whole bunch of investors, and take this new technology and raise money really quickly, and in a way that was a lot more custom-tailored to what you were trying to do with the company you were trying to buy. This caused an explosion in the private equity world. And being a partner on the capital markets desk, working with a guy named Peter Ackerman and with Mike, Peter was more the client side, the issuer side, and Mike was, of course, more the sales and trading side, but we were part of the sales and trading high-yield bond department, and I was very young at the time. I was in my 20s. That was exposure to something that was groundbreaking financial technology and change. It was terrific, and it was exciting, but I was still one step away from being a principal myself. What was the internal culture at Drexel like on Mike's team on the West Coast? Mike was very inspirational and positive thinking. That personality really pervaded the organization. The culture was don't be afraid to be inventive, figure out how to get to yes, don't figure out how to get to no. Peter Ackerman, the guy I worked for, one of the very senior partners at Drexel, was unbelievably creative at breaking log jams in every major transaction that we were doing and figuring out a way to get deals done. So it was a very positive, get things done culture. It was a creative culture where you were encouraged to design new securities and to just figure it out. We were all young. We didn't know what we were doing, but no one else did either. So we were free to figure it out. And Mike was an extremely empowering boss to all of us in that department and to all of us at the firm. So you were eventually going to go on your path to launching your own business anyway. Before you got there, Drexel went down. And I'm curious, from being inside a place like that where there was a line crossed, what that trajectory was like to creating and owning a marketplace and then seeing something potentially go too far? It was a tremendous shame and, in my opinion, was really entirely unnecessary. We all know the history. I don't have to relive what's in the public records. 
but certainly when Drexel made its missteps, there was no one there to rescue them. Not even close, quite the opposite. It was a shame, but we could see that writing on the wall two or three years before it actually failed. But the first three years that I was there from 1984 to 1987 were a period of exponential growth, exponential creativity, explosion in the size of the market that we're creating and the characteristics of it, and explosion in the private equity market because we empowered huge growth in that business. Once we started to be able to see the cracks, it was pretty clear it was time to start thinking about what to do next. Had Drexel stayed on the right path and not made the mistakes that it made, I'm not sure that I would have left so quickly. We were having a lot of fun. We were all getting paid for it. It was so intellectually engaging and rewarding. When it did go away, myself and Mitch and a few others decided we were going to try to do something on our own. Ill-planned, (laughs) ill-designed. We knew how to analyze securities. We didn't know much about how to run a business, how to hire people, how to retain people, how to build a culture. We knew what we stood for, so that was good those values that we have organizationally, liking intellectually challenging complex situations and figuring out how to make money in those, that was all good. But we didn't know how to raise money. We didn't know how to deal with all of the things that you have to deal with in starting a business. And we also weren't in New York. So we probably didn't have a lot of the enabling infrastructure around us that we might have had had we been in New York. On the other hand, maybe it let us grow something out of the universe of the mainstream a little quicker as well. It sounds like now you look back and there were all these things that you could have known as an entrepreneur, and yet you did get started and it eventually became what Canyon is today. So I'd just love to hear what those early steps were like. First of all, we had no idea even how to raise money. Like, who do you go to to raise money? All we knew is that the market was a complete disaster. Drexel was out of business. The savings and loan business was in free fall because of all the real estate bad lending that had been done. So the Resolution Trust had taken over thrift after thrift after thrift. And the federal government was proud owner of a lot of high-yield bonds, as were insurance companies, and there's no market. So If you sell when there's no market because Drexel's gone and the next biggest guy is a tiny fraction of that and they don't know the credits particularly well, the prices get absurdly low on pretty good credits. And it's also a time when the U.S. economy was recovering from a recession in the late 80s. So you had an economy pointed up and bond prices going down and it made no sense. Here was this opportunity to buy things and we had no idea how to do that. We started out by doing advisory work on bankruptcies. That was good because it paid monthly fees and success fees, and it was sort of M&A related in the end. We had a lot of clients who were clients, particularly of mine, from the financing side, people I had worked with, private equity firms. But we quickly realized we needed to find some capital. We didn't really know much about how to set up a hedge fund or a mutual fund or what the right format was, but we knew that the hedge fund structure was much better than a daily liquidity mutual fund, given the lack of liquidity in the markets from time to time, and particularly at that moment. After a lot of banging on doors, not really knowing what we were doing, we managed to get three large private accounts to give us single client managed accounts. One was a sleeve a hedge fund gave us, one was from a foreign bank, and one was from a U.S. insurance company. Again, it was like shooting fish in a barrel at that moment in time in the market because all the prices were artificially depressed by the SNL crisis and by Drexel's bankruptcy. The economy was turning straight up, and we were pretty good at doing the credit analysis. Those accounts did fantastically. Then we sat back and said, well, we have to give this money back because they're limited duration accounts. We need to start a fund. So we started a hedge fund and half of it was our own money initially. I think we had $18 million at the first close. Then over time, we figured out how to access institutions. 
We were nothing if not persistent. We were super persistent. We called all sorts of people. We had no idea the right way to do it. We made sure that at all times we were going to be completely transparent and we were going to work hard and be good credit analysts. And if you do those things right, eventually good things happen. So eventually we pieced it together. What was the core investment philosophy underpinning the pitch once you got past that cyclical opportunity and were presenting a fund? We were trying to do something different from conventional capital markets investing. So we were trying to buy things that were complicated that would eventually become simpler. And generally, though not always, do things that were driven by credit markets. So distressed is an example of a perfect asset class that would fit in our type of operation that wouldn't fit with a lot of the conventional players in the market. Although by 1994 and 5, distressed had largely run its course, at least for a while. We were doing arbitrage, from convertible arbitrage to risk arbitrage to other types of arbitrage. We would do stressed total return debt. We would make direct loans to people who were in a complicated fix and needed money quickly. And if we couldn't have enough capital ourselves to provide that entire tranche that we were pricing, we'd share it with a few friends. And we did that many, many times back in the old days. What characterizes everything that we did? Generally, we did value-oriented situations. This wasn't incomprehensible valuation, growthy stuff where you really didn't know what it was. It was mostly value orientation. It was usually something that was complicated and disliked because some change had happened and it was being rejected by the world at large, or it was complicated and new issue oriented, but didn't fit into the normal boxes in the capital markets. Those were the common themes, complicated, very susceptible to high level analysis, generally credit oriented, generally value oriented, and usually had some defined exit. So what was complicated today was going to be simple in the future because the bankruptcy process has run its course or because the buyer was going to divest of things and then be a nice, pure play, simple company or whatever. But generally speaking, complex things that require real roll-up-your-sleeves type work where many other people, particularly traditional high-yield players, mutual funds and so forth, were not that likely to play and were more likely sellers than buyers and where we felt like sometime in the relatively foreseeable future, things will simplify and then traditional buyers will be there. So at some point down the road from then, that box may have eventually been called event-driven hedge fund or something like that. What you just described is the furthest thing you could imagine in, say, the early 90s from an elevator pitch. So I'm curious, how did you get from those initial $18 million to something that was a business when there probably wasn't a box around for someone to fit you into? It wasn't that smart. That was the problem. (laughs) If you're trying to build a business, I remember when our good friends, Bruce Karsh and Howard Marks left Trust Company of the West to start Oak Tree and almost instantly had more capital than we did or at least as much. And we had started a few years earlier. And part of it was that they understood the capital allocation models that institutions had. And they had a box for convert ARB, a box for risk ARB, a box for real estate, a box for high yield, a box for distressed, a box for stressed, a box for long short equity, a box for global macro. They didn't create products for every box, but they created products that were oriented toward boxes. And then they went to capital allocators. We said, let's do something that we would put our own money in and was a field of dreams. If we build it, they will come. Well, that's not really true. And then all of a sudden, like manna from heaven, down came a category called multi-strategy. And we were deemed to be multi-strategy, even though we were credit-oriented. And that became popular for a while. That fueled a lot of growth. We didn't think as thoughtfully about building a business as we did about the underlying investments. We were a little better artists than we were business people. And that doesn't always work. 
What were some of the key milestones of your trajectory of the business, say, from those early days till more recent times? We got interested in sovereign debt at one time, something we flirted with and then got out of. First, the Asian crisis came in 97 or so, and we did a great job at completely avoiding that. And we did a good job on the corporate debt that we were buying and the value equities and other things. So we sailed through that very well. Then, of course, the Russia crisis happened and we got killed on the Russian paper. We basically swore off things where we couldn't really handicap the odds better than the marketplace could, or even if we thought we could. It's a lot easier to do that in corporate settings where you understand the rules of play than it is in sovereign settings. That was an interesting bit of trauma. I remember we had hit a billion dollars in assets and we dropped back down to 500 and something. One of our young associates who had just joined us was looking at our pitch materials. She said, it says you have over $500 million. I thought it was a billion dollars. It was. We tried to repot ourselves in the lower volatility part of the world and I think did a pretty good job at that and figured out enough varieties of strategy within credit-oriented and arbitrage-oriented strategies to avoid things that were more global macro in nature. So that was a pretty big wake-up call for us. We also, over time, have realized that you have to be a business person and you have to create products not only that you're good at, but also that do fit the needs of clients. And we're probably better at that today than we used to be. So we've parsed out a half a dozen different lines of business from one business. So our CLO business is separate. Our direct lending business is now a separate business. Our hedge fund business is still there. We have high yield and bank debt managed accounts. That's a separate business. Our real estate businesses are separate. So we've created these different pods eventually, but later than some. And that has kept our growth at a lower level than maybe it otherwise would have been, which isn't a bad thing necessarily because we're trying to occupy a space in the financial world as being a high value added niche player as opposed to being a gigantic supermarket. So if you think through the trajectory and the business at the highest level, you get started in that first decade, you get to a billion and maybe back to half a billion. Where did it go if you take the late 90s to 10 years after that to more recently, both in assets and people? We've always had a fairly people-intensive approach to life. We were one of the very first firms of our sort to register with the SEC. We chose to do that because we thought it would project a certain level of transparency and compliance that would serve our business. And a lot of our clients are endowments and foundations and sovereign wealth funds and other clients to whom those things are quite important. And I also think that no investor will always do a great job at every point in every cycle. So you may as well give people a second reason to stick with you if you happen to do a poor job on the investing side. And I think having good transparency and compliance and being a resource to your investors is quite important. We had a heavy component of personnel who were oriented around transparency and compliance and communication. It started out with a few of us in a little room at somebody's law firm, and then it grew and grew and grew. And now we have about 220, 230 people. And the investment staff is probably 65 or 70, and the rest are all sorts of very important functionality that supports that. And they're very important. You have to do those at the highest levels. But we also expanded geographically. We opened an office in New York a very long time ago. That was essential just because we're in New York constantly. The street is in New York. A lot of our colleagues and competitors and friends and so forth have a presence here. So it's very important for us to have enough touch points in New York. We opened an office in London, early 2000s, maybe 2004, 5, 6, something like that. And we've had a continuing presence there. That's very important because we do a lot of stressed and distressed trading out of Europe in general, and London is the gateway for that. 
We opened an office in Tokyo because we do a lot of business with Japanese investors and a few other offices as well. We have a research office in Hong Kong. We have an investor office in Shanghai. It's difficult because when you buy mostly credit-oriented securities, predictability of rule of law and of the way in which restructurings are handled when there's an overleveraged credit, those are critical elements of being able to be a successful investor. That doesn't work equally well in all countries. And evolving institutions that create that predictability can take decades. Very different picture in Asia, where those things are evolving now very actively from, say, England, where that's quite well-developed. Quite different from the U.S., by the way, but at least well-developed and relatively predictable. How do you organize this investment team where the core concentration of your activity was to find these complex opportunities in different areas? How did you arrange your team to be able to capture these opportunities? There are two broad ways to do these things. One is you arrange them by product. So you have a separate distress team, a separate high yield team, a separate team to do real estate. And the other way is you arrange them by subject. So you have people in different industry groups. One person covers retail, one person covers industrials, energy, whatever. We've generally started out with the idea that we would have a common pool of analysts specialized by industries. That's different when you get to particularly highly specialized types of securities, like, say, securitized products, whether that's RMBS or CMBS or student loans or consumer loans or car loans. Anything that's put in a structured, securitized package is usually quite specialized. So we have separate professionals work on that from the ones who work on other things. CLOs are a particularly specialized type of product. We have a dedicated CLO team, but the dedicated CLO team, one of the reasons why I think they have such an outstanding track record is that they communicate extensively with and get the credits that they recommend approved by the broader credit team. So they have access to the same pool that the hedge fund analysts have access to. That's evolving, but we've organized it generally in most cases by industry, but where we need specialists for something specific like trading the CLO portfolios or trading structured products, we'll have that be separate. The trend now within our firm is to have a little more separation. So we have some people who are very focused on origination of loans. We have other people very focused on deep distressed. They'll access the industry expertise of others, but we're evolving toward more separation by the nature of the fund and the nature of the function as opposed to the same type of pure industry focus that we had in the past. So if you start with credit and distressed, as an example, there's a lot of cyclicality in the opportunities. It could be across industries. It could be across distress cycles. How do you keep a team together for such a long period of time that has that industry specialization when the opportunity set for the complex, most attractive investments can come and go? Yeah, that's a very good question. You have to reward people for not investing as well as for investing because there's a time when their areas are not particularly attractive and you don't want to push people to invest. So you want them to own a piece of the overall firm carry, if you will, as opposed to just their own so that they're not hoarding assets at a time when their area is not interesting and they're just taking risk because they have upside and not downside. We're very careful about what the incentive schemes are. And generally speaking, people at the senior level are paid by how the firm does, not how they individually do, although we make provisions so that we can recognize unusual contributions. But it's a challenge. And right when you think there's going to be no opportunities, all of a sudden they show up. We've just lived through a decade of declining interest rates where yield got lower and lower and lower on almost every instrument. So the yields were dropping. You weren't getting rewarded for becoming a more junior lender. 
because you were only getting paid a tiny amount of incremental yield for going deeper in the capitalization. So prior to, say, the first quarter of this year, we were in a market where what you're describing with distressed was not just with distressed. There were some ninth inning distressed things to play, like the last chapter of Puerto Rico, the distressed oil rig companies that had all been restructured that now are starting to all sign up long-term contracts at very high prices because of what's going on in the energy business. But most of the traditional distressed was gone. Traditional high yield had a very low yield. Treasuries had very, very, very low yields. So you had low yields, low spreads, and not getting paid for taking more risk. You could go down to triple C and you barely got paid additional. Well, that's a very hazardous environment. So you have to pull your horns in and generate more cash and sit more senior in the capitalization, be more floating rate, do things that are defensive, and just tell everybody we're going to have to wait a while before we get more aggressive. That's a bit more macro observation because the tendency is to say, oh, I like this bond because it's cheaper than that bond. But if the market gets smoked, they're all going to trade badly. And of course, that's what's happened this year. Thank God we kept the people on the team because most of our senior people have been with us for between 10 and 20 years, a lot of them 14, 15, 16. When the market just exploded and the Fed started raising rates, now the high yield market's down 14% year to date, the investment grade's down massively, the equity indices are down massively, and all of a sudden the opportunity set is dramatically different from what it was 12 weeks ago. You have to be patient and wait for those moments. How do you create your internal compensation structure so that these people are comfortable and happy to stay around for 13, 14, 15 years when, if you look at this last period up until a couple months ago, there was probably a lot more waiting than there was exciting activity in this world. I think people have to love what they do first and foremost, and they have to trust the people they work with. If they love what they do and they trust the people that they work with, and when things work out well, they get compensated in a way that they believe is fair and mostly transparent, that's the best thing you can do. It's never going to be perfect. You can pay people an awful lot of money, and then they can say, uh, there's nothing to do. I think I'll just leave. They can decide they want to be the CIO when the firm can only have one CIO or maybe two. There's a lot of reasons. Usually in this industry, there's very, very high turnover. Our job is to hire the very, very best people we can find and then to try to get them to stay as long as it makes sense. And it doesn't always make sense forever. You need to constantly refresh people. You need to get those super energetic people in their 20s and 30s and give them a career path. So some turnover is actually helpful. Most important is they love what they do. They feel very well respected for their expertise and they get compensated fairly for what they do. You and Mitch have worked together for a long time and you don't see that many partnerships in this business work for so long. What's been the special sauce that's worked so well for the two of you as partners of the organization? We both have a certain amount of respect for each other, and I think we also both serve different functions. I'm not sure that I would recommend this business model for other businesses. Goldman Sachs, for years, did this very well. They had Whitehead and Weinberg. They had Rubin and Friedman. They've had pairs of leaders, and it's worked very well. Usually when the leaders are very different from each other, have different interests and different responsibilities that evolve. Mitch and I are probably a little bit like that in some ways, and I think that may be one of the reasons why it works. But I think there are certain things that Mitch imparts to the organization in a very powerful way that maybe I don't impart the same way, and certain things that I do that he doesn't. Mitch is obsessed with the research side. He's a profoundly decent and ethical person. People trust Mitch. He's sort of set the standard for what deep research looks like at Canyon. 
I don't get in the way of that process, although I parachute in and parachute out. Sometimes people think that I'm the risk on guy and he's the risk off guy. And I guess there's probably a little bit of truth to that because he likes to be really, really sure before he takes a risk, although once in a while surprise you on something. And I think the fact that we debate about things or argue about things makes it okay to debate and argue about things, which is also a characteristic of the organization. I'd love to turn a little bit to the markets, and there's been a lot that's changed over time in the structure of the credit markets. love to get your sense what you're seeing of to the banks and the private markets, both credit and equity. There's been a massive growth in the private markets. And again, I think that origin can be traced in large part to where we were before we started Canyon, which was Drexel. The number of private equity firms exploded. The velocity of transactions exploded. The technology for allowing private equity firms both to be competitive with other corporate buyers in terms of speed and in terms of price was critical to that. A lot fewer headaches running a private company than there are running a public company. Every year, the private markets grow at the expense of the public markets. The number of public markets has shrunk dramatically to less than half of what it was a couple of decades ago. Two or three years ago was the first year that the high yield market, privately issued high yield, exceeded publicly issued high yield. It's quicker. There are certainly situations that cause unusual arbitrages because of the differences. The private markets have really taken over in a very major way. The role of banks has changed. We saw that pre 2008, the banks were in such a precarious state because they had really become gigantic merchant banks and with big principal positions and hugely levered balance sheets. And basically, the whole industry almost blew up in the global financial crisis. So then you had Volcker Rule and Dodd-Frank and all these other regulations, all the European regulations, that basically caused the banks to pull their horns in massively. Now you see private lending, many, many firms doing direct lending. And you'll see some of those firms appear in the league tables as direct competitors of J.P. Morgan and Citibank and Goldman Sachs and everyone else. The private markets tend to drive a lot of progress and a lot of change. I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. It has a pretty dramatic effect on the role of institutions. The nice thing in the private markets right now is you don't have as many critical players in terms of being in a position to take down the economy or threaten the liquidity of the whole financial system. As long as the banks are forced into a more conservative mode where they're not using their balance sheets as aggressively and their leverage is so much less than it was 15 years ago, you have a capital allocation system that's generally pretty safe and is able to work in a pretty free enterprise way and competitive way, and where one failure doesn't cause a daisy chain of failures across the system. And that's a healthier system than what we had prior to 2008. One of the benefits of the old system you hear about is the market making that went alongside of the bank's ability to hold assets on their balance sheet. What are you seeing in the liquidity of the instruments that you trade? Liquidity has always been fleeting in some of the things that we invest in. Even when we started the business, Drexel had a disproportionate share of the trading in the secondary market of high yield. So when Drexel went away, liquidity went away in many respects. And then other firms all showed up because if there's no liquidity, there's usually a lot of profit in making liquidity. So market makers showed up, often competitors' firms that refused to go into the industry, but then hired someone from Drexel to run their department the next minute. So <laughs> that's what happens. Banks used to hold a disproportionate percentage of the high yield universe, like pre-08, I want to say 20% plus. So that helps for market making. That's not the case at all anymore. So liquidity can be very challenged. 
also a lot of the players who were playing in the secondary market for high yield, the more active people who would pounce in and then step out, depending on what the mutual funds were doing, have migrated toward other parts of the market, particularly direct lending. So they've left a hole in some of that liquidity which means when a mutual fund wants to sell, at least at this particular moment in time, the bids can be pretty disappointing. And that's a good thing if you're a buyer, but it's not necessarily a great thing if you're a seller because liquidity is challenging. And it's not always great as a buyer either because you might see something quoted at a certain level, but you might not really be able to buy what you want to buy or buy enough to make a difference. It's also tough if you're a very large player because you can't necessarily buy enough to impact your portfolio. Liquidity has always come and gone At this particular moment, it's been driven out of some of the middle of the market just because some of the players have moved up market to mostly large lending. And there wasn't much to do in the middle of the market other than mutual fund, low yieldings, index type stuff. And now all of a sudden there is, but the liquidity is not there. So I think that will always come and go and come and go. It will never be perfect in these markets. Whether they are technically public or technically private doesn't seem to matter that much. The other thing that seems to come and go a lot is every couple of years, someone throws a warning shot about the potential mismatch in liquidity with credit instruments and say the ETF world most recently or the mutual fund world before that. As we go through these pockets of downdraft like we have earlier this year, have you seen any of these potential mismatch issues cause real problems in the markets? The entire history of the financial world is one of crises that are born of exactly what you say, where you have a combination of illiquid assets held by a firm that has liquid liabilities, like a bank, and is leveraged. So leveraged and a mismatch is always the disaster. Always. That was what happened in the thrift crisis the first time around. Very illiquid real estate loans funded by daily deposits from depositors could take them out. Commercial banks that had a combination of commercial paper and deposits and all sorts of very short-term liabilities, buying all sorts of securities as principal that were not really marketable, plus not keeping track of what their real liabilities were because the derivatives market had gotten so overblown without careful compliance and regulation. There are so many stories out there of institutions that have failed that are highly leveraged and have a mismatch. And if it pervades the banks, which are the absolute center of the financial world, then it becomes systematic risk. That's a very dangerous system. We don't have that right now. The banks are not leveraged up to crazy levels, and they don't own tons of illiquid securities. A lot of those securities have gone to other balance sheets in the shadow banking system. So the worry is the shadow banking system somehow full of mismatch and leverage. I don't think so. I think that most of the private lending entities out there, if they have bad assets, that's life. But A, they're not systematically important, and B, they're not that leveraged. I'd love to go from some of the market structure issues to a little more micro in the work that you do with people who touch distressed investing in particular. So much of the right side of the balance sheet investing can be a zero-sum game. And so many of the principles that you espoused for Canyon trust and treating people well are not necessarily the same features you see commonly displayed by people in the distressed market. I'm curious how you bring those two things together. I don't necessarily see it as a zero-sum game at all. I look at it as us and our colleagues against the house, if you want to think of it that way. And sometimes there's an equity holder who's trying to steal stuff that should belong to the creditors at this point because they've already blown up the company. And the game for the creditors is A, to restructure it, but then to figure out who should really run these assets to create value. So it's not always a zero-sum game. 
But it, sometimes it's treated that way. There was definitely a phase a couple of years ago, I was pretty vocal about this, where you'd have to watch out for creditors who were in the same category of assets that you owned. So you might own the fulcrum security of whatever it is. And then you find out that your colleagues who own the same security are organizing some special rights offering that basically gives them benefits that you're not entitled to. There are certain lines that you have to draw in terms of how you behave in general. And it's not that you can be stupid. And sometimes you have to make sure you have sharp elbows too. But generally speaking, some of those things are really distasteful. They don't rank high on the ethics scale, in my view. And some of that creditor-on-creditor violence that you get, particularly if it's from people who are in the same asset class as you. It's one thing to fight against people who they own the subordinated, you own the senior, or you own the subordinated and they own the senior. That's a legitimate battle that gets fought out. There are legal rights that you have that you assert. There are things that you do. Generally, you should be similarly treated if you're similarly situated. There was a period where returns were so scarce that there was a lot of pretty rough behavior within creditor groups that way. We try to avoid that. I don't like that game. Probably around the same time, there were a fair number of transactions in the CDS market where people would touch multiple sides of the same incentive structures within a balance sheet. Curious how that's played out the last couple of years. That's also become less of a thing. There were some very famous ones. I think there was an article on Bloomberg or somebody. They likened it to buying insurance and then setting fire to the building and then putting out the fire after you collect the insurance money. And it is like that a little bit. Those also, I think, got a lot of disapproval. And I think they attract a lot of attention of regulators whose attention you don't want to attract. We haven't seen much of that lately, but we also haven't had a full-blown ugly distress cycle. We had one post-08. Some of those names took many years to play out. Then we had some of these larger, later bankruptcies like Caesars and like Puerto Rico. But there was less of that type of manipulation. Bankruptcy is a rough game. Not everybody's getting out making money in most bankruptcies. There's usually a reason why a bankruptcy occurred. And someone's going to win and someone's going to lose. And you can expect a certain amount of caged animal behavior from the participants. So as we go into this first leg down, and we'll see what happens from here, curious where you start assessing the opportunities you're most excited about across the different disciplines you participate in? The first thing that happens when the Fed starts raising rates like this is a lot of mutual funds that own long-duration, low-rate paper find that it immediately drops in price. Rather than that attracting new people to put money in those mutual funds and say, oh, look, it's all cheaper, it tends to attract sellers who say, I didn't know this thing could go down as well as go up. They're selling into a lousy secondary market. So the first areas of opportunities tend to be just simple secondary market securities that have dropped 15 or 20 points without all that much happening to the issuer. Some of them, you have to watch them a little more closely because they're more cyclical industries or whatever. There are a lot of very good securities that are all of a sudden buys that were certainly not buys 20 points higher. If you've managed to preserve your firepower and not suffer too much damage on the way down, that's the first place, in my opinion, that one looks. That's just conventional, high-yield, super beaten-up paper in credit-worthy companies, hopefully not too long-duration paper because then you have more exposure to other trading. There might be some distress. There might not be some distress. We'll see. I would expect there will be some distress, but I think it's going to take a little while before that develops because a lot of the paper that's been issued doesn't have covenants or has very, very light covenants. And coupons are really low. A company can be distressed long before they default on their debt. So you might be waiting a long time for real distress. It's hard to predict just how deep a recession might be. 
I have my views. Others have different views. Some people think it's going to be a horrible, awful recession to wring inflation out of the world. My tendency is to be a bit more moderate on that. I think people are already pulling in their horns in terms of consumer demand and supply chains are starting to get rectified, but other parts of inflation won't. And the Fed has to show its seriousness after losing some credibility last time. So they'll probably raise rates even if they don't really need to. But in any event, predicting exactly how deep a recession is is a tough one. But I think we can wait a little while for the real distressed. Right now, there's just tons of stressed paper that's just trading stress that might not even be stressed companies. The second area we're seeing it is in direct lending. And I don't mean the general Unitronch private lending, but more special situation sponsor needs to move quickly, etc. It reverberates for exactly the same reason. The commercial banks were competing with the direct lenders, and they got jammed with all sorts of paper that they now have to sell at 90 or 85 or whatever. It happens in every cycle. They get aggressive. They want to be competitive. They don't like having someone else show up ahead of them on the league table, so they compete. And they might make a lot of money along the way, but then the last few they get stuck with. So if you're deciding to make a new loan in a special situation to someone, that loan has to be competitive with what you're buying off the bank's balance sheets directly. All these markets are tied together. So primary lending gets to be much more interesting as well. The secondary market for bonds, there's help the banks get rid of inventory they're stuck with types of trades. There's new lending that has to be competitive with all that. And then I'd say structured products are a fourth area. If you look at the prices for securitization tranches of things like home improvement loans, which are unsecured loans to people with pretty good FICO scores, those junior tranches are trading at probably triple to four times the spread that they traded at just a few months ago. That's an enormous explosion in the rate of return that you can earn on that kind of paper, unless you think there's truly a massive fundamental hit in the risk that you're taking. What types of opportunities are you seeing outside the U.S.? Obviously, China, the property sector, has had more than its share of significant stress. For us, participating in that kind of a market is difficult because it's non-transparent. The rules of engagement and practices aren't completely clear, but it has reverberations in other ways. So, for example, we made a loan that was a first lien real estate loan on a project in London where the developer was a Chinese developer who was having refinancing problems for exactly that reason. We looked at it just as a UK property loan on a partially constructed building. We just got taken out of that loan. But it was take one step to the left or one step to the right to try to figure out a way to take advantage of the fact that there's some disorder going on in one part of the world, but you don't have to really be right in that part of the world. Europe has been a very interesting place for making direct loans as well, because it's probably a little slower and looks a little weaker than the U.S. There are more companies that are closer to the edge that need our kind of money or other special situation type of capital that can solve an important problem they have in their balance sheet. It's a less of a plain vanilla market. We like the U.K., we like Western Europe, but we're being very cautious in those environments. What are the biggest risks that are keeping your alarm bells up on that caution? You always have to be careful in certain markets that you know the jurisdictional rules, but we've been down that path for 33 years as a firm. We know the difference between working on a bankruptcy or a distressed situation if things go in the wrong direction in England versus France versus Spain versus Italy, etc. Those you do have to always watch out for. What I worry about more is that we don't have our arms around in a highly confident way of exactly how deep a recession will be in Europe. The energy situation is complex, a change of regime in the UK, the war in the Ukraine. These are exogenous things that just come from left field. I don't think five years ago anyone would have expected any of these things or even a year ago. 
you have to expect the unexpected and then say, how is that going to affect what is already a significantly weakening economic picture? How do you think about inflation in the U.S.? I think that some of the inflation will take care of itself, some of the supply chain things. And some of it is much more difficult. And no matter what the Fed does, it's very hard to take the inflation out of it. Look, they've gotten energy prices down quite dramatically. If you look at the stock price of all the energy complex, they're down 30% already. That doesn't mean they're really going to solve the energy problem. You can't solve it just by suppressing demand. You have to figure out alternative supply. Because at the end of the day, depletion is something like 10% a year, and there's no new supply, and demand keeps coming from different parts of the world. It's complicated. And no matter what the Fed does, that's an issue. Inflation comes from different things. It was quite clear to us that there was going to be a certain amount of inflation driven by the quick recovery of demand from COVID and the extreme disruption of supply chains that had just been shut down and they don't come back online immediately. I remember speaking with one of the senior Goldman partners about this 18 months ago. And at the time, we were talking about transitory inflation, but fairly substantial transitory inflation. Since then, a lot of other things have happened, including what's gone on with Russia and the Ukraine, including what's happened with additional shutdowns in China, which prevent the supply chain from reacting the right way. And on top of it, rather than remove the punch bowl, the Fed went all in the other way. And so did the Treasury with a big stimulus plan under Trump and then another one under Biden. So it doesn't surprise me that inflation would be quite a bit worse than people said. And at this point, the Fed has to restore credibility by not only being tough once, but even if it looks like the market's adapting, they have to be tough again. I think some of the inflation will be self-curing in the sense that the Fed signaling often means the Fed doesn't have to do what it's signaling that it's going to do. The Fed signaled in COVID that they were going to buy all sorts of securities. Well, they did a certain amount of quantitative easing, but at the end of the day, most of the programs that they established to buy securities were never funded at any material degree because the market reacted almost instantaneously and said, ah, the Fed's going to be there to the rescue, so I'm okay. And the markets did it themselves. And this time, the Fed is saying, we're going to raise rates and we're going to suppress demand like crazy. We might cause a recession. It's going to be kind of tricky not to. Consumers immediately reacted by suppressing demand somewhat. Supply chains are starting to come into balance. Oil prices are coming down. Sometimes the market does it because the Fed said it, and then the Fed doesn't actually have to do it. In this case, I do think the Fed has to do it a little longer because their credibility has been low. And maybe that means that they oversteer a little bit. And that's what it takes. I do think the inflation is going to be a little more persistent. But I'm not one who believes that we're going to have a gigantic and deep recession when you're starting with 3.6% unemployment and healthy consumer balance sheets. When you're sharpening your pencils on credit analysis, how do you either react or respond to what you're seeing on the inflation side? A lot of time we try to use historical analogies. So when we're looking at some of these securities that we talked about and we're looking at how bad can it get, and we start saying, how bad did things look in 2008 in terms of default rates and credit losses on cars? That's serious recession, not necessarily the inflation part, but the recession part. So we try to look at a lot of scenarios that we build from prior episodes, either of inflation or recession, and we try to say, how much can we tolerate? What's different this time, of course, is that unlike the COVID-induced problem where the Fed was there to the rescue, the Fed here is the cause. They're not rescuing you. They're doing this purposely because they're trying to deal with inflation. We try to look at all these scenarios. We try to prepare ourselves as opposed to predict. That's one of the mantras we repeat often here is 
prepare, don't predict. And you have the ability to hedge. You have the ability to protect your positions. The nice thing about the format of most of our money is you can do that. So that's what we try to do. I'd love to turn a little bit to your seat on the other side of the table. You've been on board trustees, investment committees of a number of institutions. Knowing what you know from the inside of Canyon, what do you see that those boards or those pools of capital may not fully appreciate from what you know from the inside? Remember, what I do for a living is much more narrow than what they do. We have an area that we focus on. It's generally credit-related. It's generally value-oriented. It's generally complex situations that are becoming simple. But there are broad swaths of the market that we don't necessarily focus on, and those institutions very much do. Venture capital, pure private equity investing, et cetera. Sometimes they get a little too caught up in the competition of what everyone else is doing because they all get benchmarked and paid based on how everybody else is doing in the industry. So if everybody's doing goofy things, they might just do the same goofy things. That's true in all capital markets, by the way. Everyone has a fear of missing out. Pricing was insane at the end of last year in the public markets, in the private markets, in the equity markets, in the debt markets. It's hard to change your investment policy on a dime. Some people do it. The endowments that I've served on have been very different in their approaches. When you're sitting in a room and the benefactor for the endowment is Eli Broad, who has strong opinions and isn't afraid to change his portfolio dramatically overnight, may he rest in peace because we miss that kind of intellectual thought process and energy from Eli. That's very different from a more bureaucratic process, if you will, at a larger institution that's got a different kind of organization. That's got a lot of entrepreneurs involved with it at the Broad. So I'm not sure that they miss anything per se. I think they operate within a certain universe. Part of the job as a trustee is to make sure that they think beyond that universe, that they think expansively. If you think there's something they're missing, then you make sure that they're at least paying attention to it. To me, it's a tremendous chance to learn. It widens my peripheral vision in the investing world tremendously. And the whole game is always to start out by having a really good CEO. That's like any business. What have you learned from sitting in those seats that caused you to think differently about investing than you had before you served in that capacity? Much more about the equity world and positive optionality. Part of the game we're doing with debt securities is, in some respects, debt is negative optionality because the best thing that happens is you get paid off and the worst thing that happens is you lose all your money. You'd rather flip that around so you have unlimited upside and limited downside. That's what equities are theoretically, but that can be a bad game too because there's a price to it. We've always thought of distressed debt as an interesting trade-off because you have that kind of upside optionality that you don't have on par securities. The same with stress debt. And one of the things that's great when you're on one of these boards, if you're looking at a broad array of other types of financial instruments, including equities, including venture, including private equity, you get a real sense for what the liquidity versus upside versus downside trade-off should be. I think it helps you identify when in the cycle it's most attractive to be doing what you're doing. So from sitting on these boards, you've seen a lot of your peers and a lot of different personalities impart their wisdom, judgment, maybe ego onto some of these pools of capital. What advice would you give, say, a new CIO if they're forming a new board about how a board member trustee can add value? I've been in several of these situations where we've hired a new CIO or CEO for the organization. And the first thing they need to do is create their own organization in their own image so they can achieve what their goals are. They were hired to achieve their goals. They weren't hired to work with a team that's already doing everything that needs to be done. 
Usually there's a reason why someone leaves and then there's a need. So you have to create your own organization that's going to serve your purpose as opposed to obstruct your purpose. And I've seen in several organizations that done really, really well, even if that means more turnover when you first come in as opposed to later on. Second of all, I tend to prefer boards that work as boards as opposed to boards that work as investment committees. If you have a great team of people and they do their work, there are parameters so that the board or the quote, investment committee is informed, they rarely object, et cetera, et cetera. But the amount of knowledge from the professional staff should be much greater than that at the board level. And the board should be guiding and making sure you're looking at different areas and figuring out the right compensation schemes and the right areas and matching the objectives of the investment team with the objectives of the university or the charity or whatever it is. That's really important. Different endowments and foundations have very different profiles. Some have constant new capital coming in. Most endowments do. Some have no new capital coming in, and they're designed to last forever. Some have immediate large capital needs. Others don't. Some entities, pension funds, for example, they might have obligations that are so far down the road that they can tolerate a level of volatility that's very different from another type of organization that has more near-term obligations or is in the middle of a major capital campaign. It's really important that the CIO have a really good and open dialogue with the board about what the organization's trying to get at and what they need, and then be willing to take risk and be very communicative about those risks because they don't always work. It's not always going to work out perfectly. All right, Josh, I want to ask you a couple of closing questions before we wrap up. So first, what's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I love my work and I love spending time with my family, but I would say my favorite activity or hobby outside is cycling. I've become a pretty avid cyclist over the last 25 years. I go cycling with a group of friends of mine every year to a different place on the globe that one of the guys tells us to show up. We show up, we bring our bike and we ride. I also think it's a great way to clear your head and think about things in a way that you can't do when everybody's around you in the office. They say there's two types of cyclists, those who crashed and those who will. Curious your story. Yeah, I've crashed. I'm in the first category. (laughs) I think everyone's crashed. It's very dangerous. It really is. So I've become a much more careful and prudent cyclist over the years. Most people don't get killed going uphill. So I go a lot slower going downhill than I used to. But it's still dangerous. What's your biggest investment pet peeve? Investors are sometimes exactly countercyclical in the way they think. When the markets are really getting smacked and you have to think like a contrarian, I think it's difficult for a lot of investors, really difficult. And I understand why it's difficult. It's very unsettling. But by our nature as distressed people, we tend to be contrarians. You have to recognize, hey, this is a time to step up as opposed to this is a time to go backwards. It drives me crazy, but I find that capital flows in our business are almost always countercyclical from what they should be. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? I think my dad had tremendous influence on me because from the time I was little, my dad said, you have to have your own business. Don't work for other people. And you have to go to business school and law school, but then you have to have your own business. So my dad had a lot of influence. He gave me the confidence and the sense that it was okay to be an entrepreneur to others. I think the Whitehead-Weinberg combination at Goldman Sachs were just such a model of style and integrity, and they did a great job. And I think that Mike Milken and Peter Ackerman were such extraordinary models of entrepreneurial creativity and client service. I've been very fortunate. I've had a lot of good people to follow. You just have to make sure you're paying attention. What type of investment do you gravitate to like a moth to a flame? 
I tend to always like complicated problem-solving types of investments. And there are two types. There's the distressed situation. Something's a total mess and it's in the toilet and everybody's selling it. Like it's Lehman Brothers and it's wildly complex or it's the Puerto Rican bankruptcy. The other ones are the ones where you interact directly with a client who needs money and he has a problem and it has to be solved fast. And there were a number of those right after COVID where people had repo lines being unwound on them or all of a sudden their revenue line was going to zero, but they had a good business and you knew it wasn't going to be zero forever. But how do you bridge from here to there in a way that's safe? Those are always good because you get paid not for taking risk, but for solving a problem. I like complexity. I think Mitch likes complexity. I think our whole organization likes things that are a little bit complicated with an outcome that hopefully won't be complicated. And what are your biggest blind spots? Historically, we were probably not as aware and reactive to macroeconomic risks and opportunities as we probably are today. I'm not sure we're perfect at it today, but I think we're much, much better today at taking a step back and saying, hey, everything's overpriced. How do we deal with that and still invest, given that it could stay this way for a long time? And our job is to invest. So how do we deal with that? You can't ignore those types of environments at all. But I think historically, we've been probably blindsided one too many times by not paying adequate attention to macroeconomic risks. A lot of these types of events that have an impact on world markets are not predictable in advance, but you still have to protect yourself against them. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? My parents were great. My mother was a school teacher. My dad was not college educated, but was an engineer. He's very smart. I tell my kids three things, and they're really based on lessons from my parents. And my kids know the three things. My parents didn't crystallize them quite as well. But I tell them, work hard, be honest, and have a positive attitude. You can be really brilliant, or you cannot be really brilliant. You can't really control that. But you can control how hard you work. You can control if you're honest. And if you're not honest, you can destroy in a day what you create in a lifetime. You got to be honest, particularly treat people the way you want to be treated. And having a positive attitude is, in many respects, the hardest one. And my dad would always say, meet people, meet people, meet people. If you have a positive attitude, people will follow you. Good things will happen. Those are styles or practices that I think I got very directly from my parents. All right, Josh, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? I think one of the lessons that I've seen from great organizations everywhere, and we probably could have used a little bit more of this early in our career, was hiring the best people. Or the way I refer to it internally is I say, A people hire A plus people, B people hire C people. You should always be trying to hire the A plus people. And if you do, things work out okay. Josh, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you very much, Tim. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one and see you next time. 